Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking about developments in Palestinian politics and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with El Monitor columnist Daoud Kutab. Daoud is a Palestinian journalist, a media activist, and director general of Community Media Network, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to advancing independent media in the Arab region. He is also a former Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton University. There are nearly 3 million Palestinians living in the West Bank, which is administered by the Palestinian Authority and its president, Mahmoud Abbas. And there are over 2 million Palestinians living in Gaza, which is ruled by the Islamic resistance movement known by its Arabic acronym, Hamas. Israel's population is nearly 9 million, and approximately 2 million of those are Arab citizens. The more things change, it seems, the more they stay the same. Last year, the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco all committed to normalizing ties with Israel, and Sudan seems on track to do the same, joining Jordan and Egypt as Arab states with diplomatic relations with Israel. And for the first time, the United Arab List, an Israeli political party, not only joined a new Israeli coalition government that was formed in June, it was the first time an Arab party had ever done so, and its leader, Mansour Abbas, was a power broker in the government formation process. Meanwhile, the fault lines between Israel and the Palestinians are familiar and remain the same as they have ever been. Israeli settlements, the status of Jerusalem, prisoners, and more. And this is all in addition to the frustrations of a young generation of Palestinians, not only fed up with the Israeli occupation, but also with their own leadership. I can think of no one better to discuss all this with than my friend and colleague, Daoud Kutab. And that conversation begins now. Daoud, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you very much, Andrew. Daoud, El Monitor is reporting today as we record this podcast that Israel is sending a delegation to the United States that in part is uh, going to explain to the administration, perhaps others, the rationale behind the designation of certain Palestinian NGOs as terrorist groups. Israel is saying that they are linked to the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And this has stirred a great deal of uh, controversy in the region, questions within the Biden administration, and some reactions on Capitol Hill. How do you see that de designation and how is it being read among Palestinians? Well, <clears throat> this is um, kind of a usual thing that the Israelis do, except uh, uh, the world is not as uh, trusting of what Israel does as it usually does. Uh, the uh, idea of uh, conflating and uh, uh, labeling anything that is critical of Israel to be either a security threat or uh, connected to terrorism or anti-Semitic, God forbid, then um, 
but these these labels are losing their value. They are being devalued by the exaggerated use and by the proven uh, falsehood of many of these attacks and, and, and accusations. So I think what happened here is that uh, the Israeli defense minister uh, <clears throat> out of the blue, uh, you know, called an organization like al haq which has been working for 30 years, is the Palestinian uh, chapter of the International Commission of Jurists, a well-respected organization. All of a sudden, they say this is a terrorist organization or diverts money to terrorists or something to that effect. And to be honest, few people believe that, believe in the terminology, unless you have such a wide definition of terrorism that includes anybody who has political thoughts or political ideas and ideologies or used to 30 years ago belong to one party or another to be a terrorist. And, and this is the problem that we have with Israel. Everything that is done by almost any Palestinian is terrorism. I mean, not a single Palestinian journalist, for example, is, uh, is labeled as a professional journalist. We're all Palestinians and in a way, one way or another, you know, one form of terrorist or another. And uh, so this, um, again, hit the, hit the wall at exactly the wrong time when a lot of people in the world are questioning Israeli uh, claims. And it was done in such a flimsy way, not even their own government knew about it, not the U.S. government knew about it. They did not really, until this moment, produce any factual uh, evidence to prove this wide-ranging claim of women's committees, agricultural committees, the children's defense uh, organizations, well-known, respected human rights organizations. Of course, uh, you know, many Israelis, many, most Palestinians, many international human rights watch and amnesty issued a joint statement and everybody's saying, wait a minute, what's going on? You know, we know these people and they are not terrorists and how, you know, we just make a claim verbally and you want everybody to believe you. And I think the biggest worry, of course, is uh, Washington. And so the Israelis have dispatched this uh, team to try to uh, to provide these secret, undeclared information, so classified they can't even tell their own people about it, to prove that all these organizations are such terrorists that you know one cannot allow to continue. Uh, it's just mind-boggling. Tell us about the PFLP because one of the accusations is that they are linked or somehow. Uh, the funding is connected to that group. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Tell us about them and how that fits into this accusation. Well, first, the PFLP is a secular organization. It has nothing to do with the Islamists. It has nothing to do with any of the, the radical uh, organizations that have been carrying out violent attacks against Israel. They are not uh, involved in any military attacks. They're not, uh, we don't have military cells. They are a radical, if you will, politically left-wing organization in the Palestinian uh, organization called the PLO. They are a PLO organization, which Israel signed a peace kind of a memorandum of understanding with. So the fact is that the PFLP is one of the organizations that make up the PLO, which is Hakrabin and has signed an agreement with the, the PLO chairman. So, you know, all of a sudden these are, you know, terrorist organizations, come on, you know. And now, um, again, it is possible that some of the uh, leaders of some of these organizations 20 years ago, 30 years ago, used to belong to the PFLP, maybe were imprisoned with charges of being a PFLP member or supporter, but so what? 
being a supporter of a left-wing Palestinian organization does not mean you're a terrorist. And this is the big problem we have with Israel is for them, anybody, any Palestinian who's opposed to the state of Israel and its occupation is somewhat labeled a terrorist. And, and that definition, I hope, will not pass in Washington. Daoud, there was, I think, an expectation that when the new government came into power in Israel, replacing Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was the longest serving Israeli prime minister, uh, when the Bennett-Lapid coalition took office in June, that relations would be better around the Palestinian issue. But since then, Israel has allowed more Palestinian workers into Israel, I guess on the, the positive side. There's been some reconstruction assistance to Gaza since the Israel-Hamas war back in May. But there's also further settlement activity around the Jerusalem airport and other areas. Give us a sense of what's happening on the ground and in terms of the political relationship between the authority and this new Israeli government. Is it considered a disappointment? Is it more of the same? How do you see it? Well, it's actually a refreshing change from the Netanyahu uh, and even the Paris and even sometimes the Rabin and others. The, this government of Israel is very honest and in a bad way, but they're very honest. They're saying, we don't want to talk to the Palestinians. We don't accept the Palestinian state. We're against the two-state solution. And that's that. Okay, we don't mind having them have a little bit of you know, uh, economic improvements here and there, but politically, they are totally honest in their, uh, they don't play games, they don't lie, they don't uh, do politics, they're just saying we're against it. Now, you know, you could look at that in, as a refreshing change, but you also could look at that as, my God, you know, for years we were told it was the Palestinians who miss, never miss an opportunity. Now it's the Israelis who are saying no to negotiations, no to talks, and they're boasting about it. Uh, so on the political level, uh, there is nothing moving at all. You know, a few uh, <clears throat> uh, far left uh, members of uh, Meretz uh, who are part of the coalition government visited Mahmoud Abbas, but nothing really of substance has happened there. Now. On the ground, uh, this, is this, uh, this is a government headed by Yamina uh, head, the head of the right wing uh, guy who used to be the head of Yesha, the Council of Jewish Settlements. And he's, you know, gung-ho on building more Jewish settlements. And uh, apparently that's what he's going to do in defiance of a UN resolution that ben, uh, Biden and Obama had and not vetoed in the late days of the Obama second administration. So UN Resolution Security Council 2334 says no settlements should be built. It's illegal, it's against international law, but this government doesn't really care. And it seems that they are not able to con be convinced by the Americans to care. Now they're trying to throw in, you know, okay, we'll allow a few Palestinian homes to be built in the Palestinian areas, as if that's a, a kind of a, a gift to the Palestinians. Although Palestinians have a right to build without uh, that being uh, offered as a as a kind of a gift or whatever, but that's how they're trying to play this one. In general, the the big issue is Jerusalem was and continues to be the big uh, point of friction. We have lots of uh, 
problems in Al-Aqsa Mosque. Today we have problems in a, a cemetery just outside of the wall called the Yusufiyah Cemetery, where the Israelis are digging up uh, you know, the bones of Palestinian Muslims and even Jordanian soldiers to create some kind of a natural park of some kind, you know, it's very shameful. And, uh, you know, there are videos of family members, you know, hugging the graves of their relatives and the Israelis taking them away and then uh, uprooting the, the graves and whatever happens with the bones. It's very shameful that this all these things are happening. But on the ground, the big issue is the uh, settlement expansion and the Jerusalem uh, conflict. Is Hamas gaining in popularity as the settlement issues pick up? And do you see that uh, Hamas is expanding its influence in the West Bank? Hamas is going through a very interesting kind of um, change in public opinion. They are more popular. And when you ask a question, you know, or do you like Hamas? And, you know, you get a high percentage. Then you ask the same question would you vote for Hamas? And you get a smaller percentage. They still do very well, but they don't do as well when you ask them the question if you would vote for them or not. And I think that reflects a kind of um, emotional support for Hamas for being tough enough, brave enough to stand up to the heavy-handed Israeli machine. But then, you know, the practical decisions come into your focus when you ask them, would you vote for Hamas? fewer people would support it. And I think that's, that's a kind of a reflection on the, on the situation of Palestinians. On the one hand, they want to, uh, groups to stand up to the Israelis, but on the other hand, they don't want to uh, have those groups be in charge and, and totally ruin life uh, as they see it. So, um, but yes, I would say Hamas has gained somewhat in popularity. I think it's starting to erode because they've not really been able to succeed since then of doing anything of importance. They have not yet concluded the prisoner exchange. The Israelis continue every now and then to bomb Gaza. So there hasn't been any, any real gains that have been made, but yes, they are popular, including in the West Bank. Now, Hamas's uh, rise in popularity, as you describe it, and for the reasons you describe, comes at the expense, of course, of the Palestinian Authority, which this year has seemed to go through a very challenging time. Um, there was the postponement of the general elections in the spring, the killing of government critic Nizar Banat, general attacks on press and other freedoms. And then at the UN, President Mahmoud Abbas's virtual address, he spoke there on September 24th, he said he was giving Israel one year to withdraw from the Palestinian territories it occupied in 1967. So pull this all together for us. You've painted a picture for us today and, and in your many columns and writings about the challenges of legitimacy that the authority is facing and the boy, did it take a hit with the, the elections not being held? Where does this all stand? And what is Abbas doing at this point by making that statement at, at the UN and how would he back it up? Yes, I would definitely agree with you that uh, Abbas got a big hit. Uh, Fatah, his movement got a, a smaller hit because despite uh, all of what Abbas did, 
uh, some of their uh, supporters, especially in the north and Jenin area, are quite active in uh, anti-Israeli uh, and anti-settlement protests. So Abbas personally, uh, his favorability ratio has gone down a lot. And um, what he did and his security people did uh, was not very good. Now, as you said, there comes the UN statement and it caught many people off guard and its specificity and its courage in the way that he kind of pulled everything together into a single, I don't know, half an hour or whatever statement that, uh, you know, put the Israelis at least uh, theoretically on, on, the, on the rope of having to, to respond. Now, um, I don't know, it's been not, I don't think it's been reported a lot, but in the last few days, there has been a flurry of meetings that uh, Abbas has been having with his own Fatah, with the PLO executive committee. They're starting to talk to other factions in the PLO that have been opposed to them. And there is apparently a preparation for talks with Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And they're talking about a meeting of the Palestine Central Council by the year end to really come up with um, the roadmap of, of what Abbas said. Everybody agrees with generally with what he said, but as you said, it has no teeth. And unless there are some general, some strong uh, positions, nobody will take uh, his statement seriously. And I think um, that's what he and his group is, are trying to say. You cannot make a statement unless you can back it up with popular struggle, popular protest, uh, boycotts, whatever. But you, uh, it's, it worth, it's worth nothing if you don't do that. And I think uh, he understands that he has to do that. Now, I think the one year ultimatum is connected to his own lifelong uh, career. He, he wants to end his career on a high note. He wants to, I think, nobody's, uh, you know, I have no information on this, but I, my analysis is that he's saying, I'm giving political, diplomatic uh, possibilities one more year. After that, I will resign and let whoever takes over, take over. That's my, my personal analysis. And I think he's given everybody a year to kind of come up with a serious plan. And at the same time, he's giving his own team or his own group a year to kind of prepare themselves for the succession of Mahmoud Abbas. Why didn't he follow through with elections as an option if he's thinking through succession? You know, it seemed at the time, as I recall, that uh, there was a concern uh, that he and his faction within Fatah uh, may have suffered a significant loss if the elections went ahead on schedule. Uh, you know, the last time we were in this situation was in uh, January 2006, and uh, he was uh, in favor of elections. And many of his advisors told him, you would lose badly. He didn't listen to them and they lost badly. At this time, again, he asked uh, his top advisors, how would we do in elections? And they told him you would lose. And not that the PLO would lose or that the secular national movement would lose, but that his own Fatah would not garner 51% of the votes. And he basically said, I'm not going to risk another election where our group would lose. And so he took the unpopular decision of postponing the elections. Now, I don't think that having the elections would have given him any kind of a heads up or any movement ahead 
uh, on the issue of succession. I think what he wants to do is is end his career on a political high note and probably on a diplomatic one rather than anything else. He's always been against any violence or any use of arms or whatever, and he will not end his political life changing his position. So elections is something that, you know, under occupation is not a huge change, as some people told him. He needs actually to have elections within his own uh, Fatah movement. That's where really you need elections. And I think once the U.S. and others were told him, we will not complain too much if you postpone the elections, and he, uh, it was a very easy decision from his point of view. Now, as you said, things didn't turn out very well because after that, uh, there was a, the death of, of one of his critics, and people who protested that death were put down very violently. And so um, add that all up together, it has, it has ruined uh, a lot of his uh, standing with, with many people. He still has strong standing, and his movement has strong standing, uh, but he himself has, has lost a lot. And, um, you know, this one-year ultimatum, maybe he's kind of last hurrah before stepping out of the political limelight. How is he managing the situation, uh, I should say, relations with the Arab Gulf states post-Abraham Accords? Now, it seems that Israel, with the backing of the U.S., is, is picking up the pace on its engagement with the UAE, for example. And uh, earlier this month, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan discussed normalization with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Now, that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon, but this overall um, trend of Israeli engagement, they're participating in the uh, Dubai Expo, uh, et cetera, and really pushing ahead with these agreements. How has that affected the PA's engagement with Arab states, on which they've relied historically for a great deal of financial and political support? Yeah. I think um, the Palestinian government's relations and including Abbas with the Gulf states has had a hit even before the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords basically uh, added to the to the demise of the relationship. Some of it has to do with the, the status of Mohammed uh, Dahlan. Some of it has to do with uh, the direction that, uh, that uh, the Palestinians were taking during the Trump administration. Uh, but overall, I would say, if you add the Trump administration, Dahlan, and the Abrahamic Accords, it, it's one big disaster. And as a result, there hasn't been much movement in terms of financial support to the Palestinian government. And, uh, you know, they're still supporting the UNRWA, and there's still some projects in Jerusalem and other places through Dahlan's uh, committees and charities. But in general, uh, the Gulf, with the exception maybe of Qatar, um, has not done very, has not had very good relations with Mahmoud Abbas and vice versa. And yes, the, the um, normalization uh, was a big blow. Initially, Palestinians uh, were attacking the Emirates, but Mahmoud Abbas himself tried to water down the criticism because not only because of needing the Gulf countries, but also because there is a huge amount of Palestinian workers and um, in general, people, business people working in the Gulf area and Palestinians cannot afford 
losing the the money that they send back home and so uh, in general the whole thing was watered down you know also jordan egypt and the palestinian government have normal relations with israel i mean they have actually signed agreements with israel so you know they cannot um be too holier than thou with those countries except in the fact that they violated a sacred agreement to uh, not to normalize until israel withdraws the arab peace plan so except for that which obviously is a very big exception uh it, it was a very difficult uh, position and i think generally palestine and also jordan and egypt kind of turned a blind eye to to the abrahamic accords believing that eventually it will not really take root and in fact it hasn't taken root with the public i mean dubai and and the emirates you know are largely um, immigrant uh, business communities they're not a genuine and they don't have a huge uh, number of nationals that live in those countries and uh, yeah but it was i mean sudan and, and morocco was much bigger problem and in both countries in sudan we're seeing today all kinds of things happening and in morocco the those who supported normalization lost big in the last election so in general uh, palestinians don't feel that it went as bad as it could have gone but they were not happy with it that they had to keep quiet how has the involvement of the united arab bliss led by mansour abbas participating in the Israeli government for the first time, how has that impacted the Palestinian issue in politics, if you think it has at all? It really hasn't, to be honest with you, Andrew. I don't feel that uh, there has been any any impact for the following reason, that Mahmoud, uh, the Abbas, Mansour Abbas agreement with Bennett and with other coalition partners Uh, stipulated that they will not take a position on the Palestinian issues. That was a stipulation. So they actually are committed not to take a position. Also, they were committed not to do anything. I mean, they are not going to to seek the two-state solution. So basically, uh, Bennett succeeded in in neutralizing them on this issue while agreeing on on big support for the budgets and for um, fighting the the internal violence in arab towns inside of israel and so on but on the palestinian issue they uh, their hands are handcuffed what are your expectations for the next year what are the kind of fault lines and trend lines that you're watching we normally do that in the eve of the year, but I'll try my best now, Andrew. Um, we, uh, I think that the big decision now and the big issue now is the, in Israel, the passing of the uh, budget. It should happen in the next two weeks. And some say that a lot of the decisions of the Israeli government these days are connected to that because of uh, Netanyahu's attempt to try to, do, to defeat the budget uh, the vote. Once the budget issue is over, uh, I think we will be in the um, in the coming year seeing more Palestinian protests as also the one year ultimatum of, of Abbas uh, starts getting closer. And also I expect that 2022 will be the year where we'll see some kind of a general direction as to who will succeed Mahmoud Abbas as the head of the Palestinian leadership. These are the issues that I'm looking at. Succession issue is going to become much bigger. 
and uh, Israel, I think, will have to come to terms with the fact that not everybody's agreeing with them, but basically most countries, including Washington, are basically holding back now so that they can get their budget passed and that slim majority that Bennett has will not be a cause for a return to Netanyahu. Oh, thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate your analysis and all your many contributions to El Monitor over the years. Thank you so much, Andrew. Take care. We will return after this break. What in the hell is going on? You ever look at the news and wonder what the hell is going on? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. We often think that when we look at the news these days. That's why we started our podcast called... What the Hell is Going On? We bring you amazing interviews with experts who know exactly what the hell is going on. Nobel Prize winning researchers. Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. And even presidents. Danny and I will break it all down for you. I'll tell you how Danny could be more interesting. And I'll explain to you why Mark is wrong. So tune in so we can all find out what, what the, the hell, hell is, is going, going on. on. Hello. I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and the Normal Soup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. The Middle East remains one of the most vital and fascinating regions in the world. It is rich in complexity and ideas, but for many in the West, it remains a puzzle with many missing pieces. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. To begin my podcast, I speak with my friend and one of the most renowned novelists of the region, Egyptian writer Ala El Eswani, about his latest book, The Republic of False Truths, that chronicles the run-up to Egypt's 2011 revolution and its aftermath. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amberin Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspit. You can subscribe to all three Al Monitor podcasts on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thanks to our guest, Daoud Kutab, our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rockland of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all of our El Monitor podcasts, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, On Israel with Ben Caspit, and On the Middle East, hosted by Amber and Zaman and me, all at your favorite podcast platform.